You're listening to an Empavillion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at empavillion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Hi everyone, um, welcome to the Black Architecture Event Material Agency. My name's Brad and I'd like to begin today by acknowledging the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung and the Bunurong Bunwarung peoples of the Kulin Nation um, as the traditional custodians of the unceded sovereign land in which we're meeting today. Um, I recognise their continuing connection to the lands, waters and skies and thank them for protecting this beautiful country since time immemorial. I pay my respects to elders past and present and extend that to all First Peoples meeting here today. My name is Brad. Um, I'm a Kwandamuka man from Minjeriba um, and an architect. And uh, today's topic is material agency. Sorry. Just so everyone knows, I get a little bit nervous during these types of things. Um, so please forgive me for occasionally reading from my phone. <clears throat> Um, so, <clears throat> thought I'd start by introducing the theme of today. Um, we start by accepting a truth. The selection of materials for application in the built environment contributes to the commodification of country. This evening's discussion will explore the idea that reframing our approach to design with an understanding that country is not solely a material entity, but a living entity with a past, a present and a future we may be better placed to design buildings that heal country. To better understand how the materials we select shape our spaces and have the ability to embed culture and knowledge in the built environment, we have three panelists with varied lived experiences. Joining us this evening are Michael McMahon, uh, Sarah Lynn Reese, and Miles Russell Cook. Do you guys want to say a little bit about yourselves? Uh, yeah, thank you, Brad. Um, I'm Michael, a proud Bundjalung man, uh, designer and researcher, um, interested in how First Nations ontologies can inform the built environment. Oh, come on, talk yourself up a bit more than that. <laughs> you studied at? Uh, I <laughs> Thanks, Sarah. Um, I graduated from the Royal College of Art in London as a Roberta Sykes uh, scholar. I'm currently working at John Wardle Architects and at Group 20, uh, and I just founded, co-founded a research and design consultancy called Beyond Heritage, um, which looks to position uh, the continent that we're on as the world's greatest design project. Oh, that's better. <laughs> um, hi, everyone. I'm Sarah Lynn Reese. I'm a Palawa woman descending from the Trollway people of Northeast Tasmania. Um, live and work across Wurundjeri, Bunurong, Bunurong country, um, pay my respects to their elders and those who have guided me in my understanding of the countries that I live and work on. Um, I'm a senior associate at Jackson Clements Burroughs Architects, lecturer at Monash University, 
co-chair of the First Nations Advisory Working Group at the Institute of Architects. I'm trying to get like faster at saying this. Um, uh, director of Parla. I basically just do too many things, um, but all of them are geared towards indigenising the built environment in some way. And my name is Miles Russell-Cook. I'm Senior Curator of Australian and First Nations Art at NGV, across the road, the big bluestone citadel. Um, uh, my family comes from Wachabalak country in northwest Victoria, and that's uh, my ancestral connection through my mother's side. Uh, but I was born on Wurundjeri Woiwurrung country, and I've always lived on Wurundjeri country. And most of my connections to place and to people really are here in Nam. Um, I'm lucky enough to get to do quite a lot of travel around Australia as part of uh, my job. So I've made connections with uh, many different communities throughout the Torres Strait and around Australia. And yeah, thanks for having me. Great, thank you. Um, and thank you for participating in this conversation. I'd like to start just with a simple definition of what is material agency in reference to your profession? Um, material agency, it's, f for, for me, uh, it's a responsibility that comes with the choices that, that we make. Um, understanding that all materials come from country and all materials become country. Uh, so it's having that in mind when thinking about when specifying, when choosing materials. Uh, and it's also the term agency, it's country having agency in our work and also us taking on that responsibility to, to, to kind of to really step to that and to understand that we have choices within this space um, and we can either violate and destroy or we can repair and care for. I think for me, um, I agree with everything that you just said, and I would add that it's about recognising that in most, well, in the Indigenous cultures that I know and have worked in, materials, we, like, the word material doesn't really exist, right? It's kind of a strange concept, but everything is alive. The timber that you use for your tree is alive. It was a home uh, before it got cut down. And so there's an inherent responsibility in how you care for the, the ecosystem of and the families that were connected to that tree. Um, when you take it away, um, we sort of, we don't do that, right? We don't consider, we, we consider if they're FSC certified, but do we consider if their home of something has been destroyed in the process? Don't know. Um, we use stone wantonly, but it takes thousands of years for it to form and we don't necessarily pay respect to the fact that it has seen so much um, and has so many stories to tell itself if you know how to read it. Like, the, we treat everything as a commodity in the context of architecture. So, for me, material agency really is making sure that we're not extracting things that we shouldn't um, and also giving agency back to those materials to tell their stories in the places that they reside. Like, the, the opening statement about the truth that you put forward is, is the reality, right? We are going to extract. So, how do we do that responsibly and how do we give agency to these materials in the process? Um, I also agree... Uh, I actually hadn't heard the term before I was invited by Sarah to, to be on the panel. And when I started thinking about this concept of material agency, it inspired um, 
inspired me to think about one particular group that I worked with a lot last year. Um, and it's Yungul community in northeast Arnhem Land in a place called Yerkala. And there is an um, expectation in Yungul culture that if you're going to paint country, that you must use materials collected from country because you can't separate the two things. So that's why artists will work on bark that's stripped from a tree using a hand axe and then flattened with smoke and fire and stone and often rubbed with animal fat um, to be prepared and then mix white pipe clay and ochre and gypsum and different naturally occurring materials as a way to create the palette that they then use to paint stories that are passed down, you know, from time immemorial. And that is, this, that is an expectation that you cannot paint country unless you are painting with country. And Yongle people are very strong in their sense of cultural protocol. And um, it was in, I think, 2014, when an artist named Dambat Mununga, um, who's an extraordinary painter, she was in a, a car accident that left her with an acquired brain injury. Um, and she found it difficult to manipulate the ochre. She couldn't grind it. And so she was given special permission by the tribal council to use store-bought paint, the first ever artist to be given permission to use store-bought paint. Because Yungu people are strong in their sense of cultural protocol, but they're also unbelievably compassionate. And this kind of got me thinking about the different ways that artists work with country and the different ways that artists um, adapt as well and First Nations people adapt and we see that throughout material culture across the entire, you know, the entire continent. You've got glass tip spears from the Kimberley uh, and, you know, Maca you know, people in throughout Arnhem Land who have been trading with Macassans from Sulawesi in modern day Indonesia and working with metal for at least 500 years before the arrival of the British. And so I think this idea that working with country and working from country and the material agency is somehow inherently has to be working with like the, the natural found material. Also, that I found that also really interesting because First Nations people have kind of been active and intrepid explorers of materials forever. And that's, yeah, I, I suppose that was where I kind of came to in my my first encounter with the term. Um, thank you. That's... Um there's currently an uh, exhibition on it, Acme, called How I See It. And um, if anyone hasn't been to it, I believe it's a free event, so please go have a look. Um, and I think one of the great things about that exhibition is that it focuses on a lot of um, kind of, I guess, reframing contemporary Indigenous art and contemporary perspectives on Indigenous art um, in a way that, yeah, I feel, you know, really resonates with what you were saying about Aboriginal people's ability to um, adapt and to grow and to, like, refocus and reshape. And <clears throat> I think that's particularly prevalent now in the built environment because we've just received, you know, we've there's a lot more research and a lot more study on um, how to design with country and what designing with country means and what connecting to country means. And you know, I know from my own experience and from speaking with other mob um, 
the ability or the knowledge for connecting to country is quite a personal experience. Um, and I really appreciate you guys explaining what, you know, your material agency means for your profession. You know, what, what does uh, material agency, and I guess not really material agency, now we're talking about materials of country more specifically, like what does it mean to you personally um, to be using materials of country? The, when, when I think about materials of country, I think of entanglement and everything that is part of what we, what we see, what we use. Um, for, for example, so on, on Bunjilung country where, where mum's family is from, um, where I'm from, It was once home to the largest red cedar forest in, in the world, um, which in the early, would have been the early 1800s was the colony's largest export. Um, and so, so recently I've got family in Lismore who were affected by, by the recent floods. And I thought to myself, why why are we here? Why, why am I feeling like this? Why am I experiencing this devastation? Who decided that this was a place to live? And I returned to, to Red Cedar, right? Because that's what my granddad moved to Lismore. Sorry, that's what he did in Lismore. And that's what his father did. And that's why my great-grandmother was on a mission at Cabbage Tree Island because this forest on her country was so valuable that she had to be moved off it. And red cedar lines the walls of, of the Supreme Court in London. It, it, it lines the walls of significant buildings in Canada, in Sydney and Melbourne. So when I think about material, I think about stories like that and the country it's come from, the people it's affected. And that's an example that's incredibly pertinent and powerful to me, but it's also informed this way of thinking about the world and the responsibility that comes with architecture in that whatever we think about, whatever we use comes from somewhere and affects people. And I suppose that is, is my kind of reading of, of materials. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. I'm not gonna chop that. <laughs> I'll, go, I'll go a different route. One that's maybe more like cultural practice and pragmatic um, to balance the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> um, but for me, um, I always think about how do we remap the processes of our ancestors into the way that we think about creating built environments. and. It comes back to this idea, for me at least, of a contemporary vernacular. We use what we have in the vicinity that's around us to create what we can from that. So instead of designing a form and then applying materials to it, we actually consider, well, what is available to us and how will we then create a form in response to that, which makes local identity, becomes a marker of place. It's the whole story of vernacular architecture in general. But what does that mean now when all of these markers have been stripped from country, all the red gums that should be covering the whole city are not there? Um, 
how, I mean, I think it, in some way architecture has a power to give that physical identity back to place if it uses the materials of country or the materials that should be there. Um, and then, you know, obviously in partnership with landscape architecture, actually re reinstate habitat and create repair. But, you know, architecture, if we break it down to its fundamental thing, is brought to life by the materials that are used. So it is one of the biggest things that we have a choice over that determines the identity of a place and the stories that it tells. I think that's, that's well, that kind of makes me think of two, I guess two points that I would want to touch on. And one is like further to that, the acknowledgement that, you know, Australia, well, colonial Australia post the arrival of the British, which, you know, fundamentally changed Australia forever. Um, everything since then has been built on extraction. Like in the 19th century, Melbourne was the richest city in the world. There's more Victorian architecture in Melbourne than any other city in the world. And it was all gold. And it, it became, Melbourne was the richest city, the most visited port, and it was all gold and it was all mining. And then you look around the country today and it's still extraction, it's still mining, it's still this kind of um, strange relationship that we have to materials as value and, and kind of this clueless fumbling forward that we can just keep digging up things and selling them and getting richer and, you know, so that, that's kind of the first point. I guess my other um, thinking on this is that it was actually when you were doing your acknowledgement, um, which was beautiful, and I have to do a lot of acknowledgements at um, at work. I have to do a lot of acknowledgements um, on behalf of people who are scared of mispronouncing things. Um, and you kind of you stand there, and I can be standing in that big blue stone citadel and acknowledging country. But I feel like we need to just, we need to take a moment every time we do that to think that, you know, I might be standing on a road or I might be standing on bitumen, concrete, and beneath me are countless kilometers of coaxial cables and vast fiber optic network plumbing and pipes and, you know, everything. But I'm, you are still on Aboriginal country. You are always on Aboriginal country. And it doesn't matter what it looks like or what's beneath your feet or if it's a carpet or whatever, it's that connection to country and that connection to place that's so vital and that's what we acknowledge and that's what, you know, we need to remember. And so I suppose material agency for me personally is about acknowledging that the materials that surround me don't define my connection to place. In fact, um, in some instances, you know, architecture can help enhance your connection to place if materials are used sensitively, if they're used in, in kind of dialogue with nature. But just because I'm standing on, in a building that was built by mining, you know, on top of concrete, doesn't, it doesn't take me any, any further away from being on Aboriginal land. And so I suppose to me that's also about sovereignty and the way that materials are, yeah, they're, they're something around us. They can be used to strengthen connection to place, but they can never be used to distance connection to place. I suppose that's, yeah, that's how I would reply. Hmm. 
It reminds me of something um, I read and um, stuck with me for a really long time and just really resonates and I still think about it a lot. And it's that um, country's not the countryside and it's not, you know, it's not the, it's not just the bushlands and the ocean. It's below our roads and it's below our cities and it's above our skylines and it's the land that, you know, we as Indigenous people yearn for and long for and will return to. Um, so, you know, everything you were saying just then, it felt like really familiar and um, a really lovely uh, kind of way. Thank you. Um, and that... <clears throat> yeah. I think um, it'd be interesting to know from all of you. Sorry, I don't know how to connect this super neatly. <laughs> um, but um, I know, Sarah, in practice, um, you're solely teaching and, you know, upskilling people in your firm about mapping uh, material history and uh, how to map country. So I was wondering if um, you'd all be able to just share, you know, how do you identify and map and acknowledge material history and... Yeah, I think material history is one component of it. Um, and it's sort of a byproduct of a question of, about architecture because we use materials. But um, for me, the process is really trying to understand what, for lack of a better term, I've called before country. So the time, pre-colonial time, but I hate using everything in relation to colonial time, so I call it before country. Um, and it's the process of trying to build up an understanding of who country was before the agency, her agency was taken away by architecture and planning. Well, not taken away, but compromised. Um, and that involves understanding, like, the geology, how, how a place was formed over 420 million years, um, understanding the ecology and what, like, plant species that would then, um, I guess, necessitate certain fauna species that would occupy that site. Then considering, okay, well, we know that we're not sharing this site alone, how can the architecture actually accommodate those other living beings that are in this place, be they flora, be they fauna, understand how water has moved through a site or maybe been cut off from a site and whether water needs to return to a site. You know, like, it's kind of endless, the way that wind moves through a space and how that might give agency to how the land is formed and maybe how a building is formed. So you can take it in kind of any direction you want, but for me the aim is to give that agency back to country by allowing some of the decisions to be made by the way that country was formed or by the way that country was. Mm. Um, and in doing so, then the material becomes a part of bringing back the identity of that place. Like, let's, not, let, like, let's be real. Like, we're gonna, if we're going to cut a tree down, we're going to cut a tree down and we're going to use its timber and we can't somehow make it a romantic notion that we're still not extracting. Like, that's just the reality. So it's just the conscious choice of why you're doing it and not that being solely an aesthetic choice, that there's a cultural choice to it, and that that has some importance and meaning to how communities see themselves reflected in the environment that they're living in. Because that's one layer of seeing yourself. For some people it'll be, the, like for me it's magpies. For some people it'll be the material that's used or the colours that are used. For others it'll be the presence of certain plants that they can use to, for cultural practice. You know, it's kind of endless how we all connect country, like you said. It's a really personal thing. So our job, I think, is to bring back as many layers as we can of that place, be they literally 
bringing those things back in the context of repair or figuratively bringing them back in the context of echoing something, so a colour palette or whatever it might be. Uh, like we know we, we know we can't... I can go on for hours, so you go. No, I just wanted to add to that that I think a really key point you just touched on, which kind of comes back to this idea of agency, is also about listening to First Peoples and Indigenous knowledge. I actually hate the term Indigenous knowledge um, because I think it's all just knowledge. And I think Indigenous knowledge is observation-based science. You know, maybe you hunt dugong on the full moon because, you know, that's when the dugong come up to eat the seagrass and that gets inscribed into a story. Uh, but it's, it's just observation-based knowledge, which is what the Western world calls science. So it's just knowledge. But listening to... 65,000 years worth of knowledge. I mean, Aboriginal people have been through two ice ages. Like, 65,000 years, an unbroken connection to this land. Mothers to daughters, fathers to son. It goes back so many generations that for most of us, we just say forever. Like, this was a time when we... when the supercontinent Sahul was connected and people were moving throughout the world. Like... People were living sophisticated lives in Australia with cultural objects um, that were sustainable, that were in inventive, that were high, they satisfy every definition of contemporary design in Australia when we still had Neanderthals in Europe. Like, Europe is really an evolutionary backwater when you look at the actual... <laughs> progress and deep knowledge that has existed in this place. And I think on Sarah's point, it's about if you're going to make decisions about changing landscape and changing such a fundamental part of this, you know, our, our experience, our cities, our country, then why on earth would you not be guided by the knowledge of the people who have, who have been here for so long? And so for me, a, a big part of this is about, my grandpa always says, you've got two ears and one mouth for a reason. You should do twice as much listening as you do talking. Um, and I feel like that's the thing I think everyone should try and take away is that, you know, ask the question of the traditional owners when you're in a place and you're looking at how you can build or alter the environment talk to people who know that place. Talk to people who know that place so unbelievably deeply that it exists in, in their blood, in their soul, in their songs and stories and families. Like, I am country and country is me. And that's, you know, it just seems so bizarre that anyone would assume to have more knowledge than the traditional owners of the place when you're, like I said, you know, 65,000 years worth of scientific observation. <laughs> yeah, and uh, to, to, to add, uh, I mean, I, th I think you've both really beautifully spoken about like, rendering visible the stakeholders of, of place, of country, and those who have rights, both human and non-human, and, like, that... There are complexities there, but we can't shy away from that. You know, there are, it's an amalgamation of negotiations and, and thinking about um, what we want to respond to, what we can respond to, and how we engage with people who culturally have the right and responsibility to engage in, 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 in the, the right ways. Um, 
and why was like as, as you were saying, the experts around this continent are just continually to amaze and inspire. I, I'm I'm working with a group up in the around the northeast Western Australia and kind of Nugara country around the Great Sandy Desert, and a project. It's called the Ten Desert Project. And it's essentially a constellation, a kind of network of solidarity of different land councils, different mobs coming together to share expertise around the shared kind of cultural space that they have, which is desert, which is it's a huge part of, of this continent. And it's so important to how so many cultural and, and natural systems operate. Um, and they're doing it in ways that are, that are phenomenal. You know, it's, it's such a, a respectful and efficient operation. Um, and I think we need to, you know, we need to start, start thinking about land management as, as design and to, to, to understand, yeah, to, to, to really, I'm going to use 65,000, but, you know, it's, it's, there's so much knowledge, respect, compassion um, that exists on country, in country, with country. And it's about finding those opportunities to connect with that. Thank you. Um, so given types of things that we've been talking about. How do you think design practitioners can reapproach um, their um, approach to designing if they begin with designing with the materials of country? And, you know, I guess um, to help with that question, I'd probably um, frame it from the perspective that, you know, we're giving design practitioners who are non-Indigenous advice on how to design with materials of country? Um. Um, I've probably said this a million times, so sorry if you've been in the audience before um, for a black architecture yarn, but to me, there are two approaches to this, right? If we're going to fundamentally reshape environments through our job, then we have a responsibility to country. Not every project is going to be able to engage with traditional custodians, so where is the line drawn and how do we actually take responsibility and we don't have cultural guidance. Now, there's probably about 17 different things that could happen, including putting Aboriginal law and planning law and creating a whole lot of infrastructure around um, value systems and knowledges of place that should inform decision-making when we're working on these projects. But strip all of that back. The most important thing is that whatever we do improves the health and well-being of the country that we're reshaping through design. Now, that doesn't mean that it has to have cultural markings on it or it has to be adorned with art or embedded with story. It just literally means that it's better off than what it was before. Yeah. I, it, I think it becomes quite simple then and it becomes... Like, you're removing the... Um, you're removing the fear of doing the wrong thing because the wrong thing is when you interpret culture inappropriately and you're not even going near that line if you're considering it from this perspective. It's not about representation. It's not about art. It's not about cultural expression. It's just about making that country healthy again. Like you were saying before, 
it doesn't matter what happens to this country, we're still on country, but that doesn't mean this country is healthy. No, that's true. So how do we bring that back? And yes, of course, knowledge systems would be fundamental in guiding that to some extent, but without those knowledge systems guiding what we're doing, we still need to take responsibility for our actions. We live here. It's our job. I think that's, that's spot on. And my, like, I, I don't work as much in the space of design. Um, you know, I'm an art curator, but then I also really believe that the distinction between art, craft and design is a false one anyway. Um, and, you know, that we look at material culture, uh, things that get called artifact or whatnot, yet they satisfy every single definition we have of contemporary design. You know, those woomeras carried by, you know, Pintipi people throughout the central desert, they're Swiss army knives, you know, they can be used for hunting, for carrying baby, they're a map, they tell you who you are, they tell you who your family are, they're, you know, used for like a coolerman so you can put a baby in it or water or whatever, like they're just extraordinary objects, sophisticated contemporary design objects that either get called art or artifacts. So I kind of, I feel like that distinction needs to be smashed anyway. But um, for me, I guess the heart of this would be also asking kind of what, what what is design for me? Like, from, I had a mentor a while ago, um, design anthropologist named Dory Tunstall, um, who's now dean at OCAD University, and she described design saying that, you know, design translates values into tangible experiences. And it doesn't matter what those values are or what those experiences are, the thing that makes it design is the translation of the value into the experience. The experience could be a car, it could be a house, it could be a service blueprint or a system of policies, or it could be, you know, graphic design, it could be a pavilion. It's the translation of the value into the experience. And I think the crux of what we're getting at here is whose values? And if we know that currently we're designing a world that is unhealthy in a lot of ways, then why would we not take a moment to look at the, the, the communities who feel so deeply about this place and whose values kept this place healthy for so long. And so I guess that's how I would go forward with this kind of, I mean, this has been a great chat as well because I'm learning lots myself as well. But yeah, that's probably how I would respond. Um, on, on, on the idea of, of making country healthier um, and kind of improving things. If, if you look at, you know, um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander organisations, traditional owner groups, um, there are strategic plans out there. There are ambitions. There are roadmaps. There are country plans. There are so many resources out there that it's our responsibility as, as designers to look at our work through that metric, right? Are we helping mob to achieve the visions that they're setting themselves, that we're setting ourselves? Um, that process will be enriched and guided by proper consultation, but it's also, we can, we can do that. You know, you can find these resources online and just, just have a look, understand what, what goals are out there to, to make country healthier and think about how what we're doing as architects, as designers, as curators 
how does that fit in with that, with those goals? You know, that's doing a bit of work is the first step, really. Just don't call it an Indigenous-led project, please. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's quite an um, interesting process of learning and unlearning and relearning when you're taking that kind of approach. And, you know, in architecture school and in design school, you're taught so... Well, when I was there, you were taught so much that the end outcome is, you know, the important thing. And it's all about this beautiful object um, that has beautiful photos taken of it and then you're kind of... You're done and someone will come and occupy the building. But the reality is for working on these types of projects a lot of the time, the success isn't how beautiful the building looks. You know, hopefully you reach that kind of place. Um, but a lot of the time the success is in whether or not, you know, the people that you've been speaking to have been heard and what they want to see realised is being realised. You know what I think Aboriginal people have uh, an understanding of that sort of is innate. It, it's this idea that we we are temporary custodians of country, and that is so embedded in everything. We are all temporary because we will all die, and we will all go back to country. We will all go back to wherever it is we came from before we were born. And I don't remember where that was. I don't know if any of you do, but we are temporary custodians of place. And I think if you can take that attitude forward as a designer in everything you do, this idea that, you know, whatever that building is that's being built, it needs to serve a purpose that is far beyond me and far beyond my life. And I think that's something that is so... I mean, there's no one homogenous Aboriginal group. Everyone's very different around the country. But that is something that I would say every community I've ever met around all of Australia, the Torres Strait, and probably First Nations people globally, is this idea that there is an understanding of our temporariness, if that's a word, um, and that we are custodians for now, but it is for the future generations, and that's why we listen to our elders so much, is because we understand that we are, we are just one part of a continuing line. We're not here to dominate. Um, <clears throat> so, if we begin with the materials of country, we're start starting the design process um, at, as place-based and country begins as centred in our thinking. We acknowledge that the material we're using exists, exists as a part of a greater ecosystem. How do we enable reciprocity between material extraction and the greater ecosystem? And this is, I think, a challenging question. And I think in um, the architecture and design community, I guess another way of thinking about it or phrasing it would be how do we recenter our approach to design um, with non-human animals and country as equal um, rights holders as humans? Um, if th thinking about the country as a, as a right holder, you know, not creating new 
and not extracting would be a key move. So thinking about um, you know strategies of reuse, thinking about um, what we can do with what already exists as a way to yeah to protect country really, um, and to also think about design for deconstruction as well. So you know for, for future generations that are inheriting what we do, what can be the legacy that we leave. Um, I, I love that it's um, I, it's kind of just innovate, innovate and recycle. You know, um, the community I was, I was speaking about before from Yerkala, the young um, people who are who live there. Like there, there is another artist. Uh, her name is Nongan Yamarawili, and she took that idea of if you're going to paint country, you have to use material collected from country. And she is so innovative. You know when you're um, printer says that it's out of ink but it's not actually out of ink it's just out of like black or something anyway she did that and she realized that they were throwing out at the back of the art center all of these cartridges but they still had ink in them and so that had just become part of the the landscape part of the fabric of 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 country and so she broke into the kind of rubbish tip out the back and she cracked open the magenta cartridges and she mixed them with white pipe clay and she became the first ever artist to use synthetic pigment in her work and made the most beautiful and arresting paintings of pink, fuchsia, magenta, extraordinary things because she looked at country and she looked at these discarded printer cartridges and she said I am collecting from country because country has changed in front of my eyes um, and you know it's artists throughout Torres Strait or Pomparau, Far North Queensland working with GhostNet, weaving with GhostNet, these amazing innovative artists who are looking to recycling and to reusing and I think that that is the kind of that's the future and it's that well it's that type of thinking that is the future. Um, I don't know, there's a lot to say on this one. I agree with what's been said. It's also actually building for things that are going to last for more than 25 years. If I read another brief that says the lifespan of this building is 25 years, I might cry. Um, I actually don't know if you can ask this question because I don't think we have enough systems in place at this point in time that can tell us how we're harming country through extraction. And I, like, I think we have to accept the fact that we are going to keep extracting but it's how do we extract and where are we extracting from and what um, is an acceptable amount of extraction from the perspective of traditional custodians of the place that that's being extracted from. Mm. Um, it's it's a it's a, one of those wicked problems. It's like it's a grey area, right? Um, I like I don't I don't actually have an answer because if I think about it for long enough, the, the systems just don't exist for us to be able to measure and quantify in the way that we need to in the Western world to justify standing up here and saying, yes, this is what we need to do. But I think maybe i just go back to what you were saying before, is that maybe we need to reassess all of those systems from the perspective of why have they come about and what values are guiding them. And if we change those values to the values of country or the rights of country, how would that change the systems that we work in, knowing that we still need to extract materials from place? So, I don't know, that's a challenge to someone who owns a timber mill or a, <laughs> or a quarry. Go work with traditional owners to understand what your responsibility to country is, the answer might be stop extracting. But also what, like what, 
where are you extracting from? You know, we've seen so many examples of sacred rock art sites being destroyed in the name of mining and for, for, for just money. And it's like you don't build a house by scavenging from Notre Dame. Like that's not why and where and why and how are we acknowledging the art and culture that is inscribed in sacred places and you know we have we have a reliance on extraction yes but we have an obligation to sacred places and to the traditional owners of this land who have built this extraordinary relationship with place and so i think that you know that's got to be also front of mind is that not everything not everywhere you know is is fair game. I mean, that sounds stupid, but we. I think we need to be thinking about the culture that's embedded in land and that's embedded in the fabric of place and the art that's embedded in place. Because if I read one more story of some mine blowing up a sacred site, I think I might be on the top of the Balti because I'm just I, I, like I can't. This is is sacred stuff. This is like it's not a it's not a joke. It is so utterly devastating and every time a site like that is destroyed a library burns you know all of this knowledge is gone and i think to yeah it, and it hurt it hurts and it hurts men i mean this isn't even where i'm connected to culturally and personally but it still hurts and i don't understand why people don't get why people aren't angrier i mean people are angry but i don't understand why people aren't angrier because to me that is just like the the greatest sin that you can commit now is to have the knowledge of a sacred place and to to destroy it in the name of making money and then the lack of accountability that these organizations have it's just kind of mind-boggling but yeah i think that's also got to be a big part of this conversation <clears throat> i think um there are so many examples of really disrespectful practices, but I'm hoping uh, maybe we can just counter that a little bit with some of your own experiences on like more appropriate methods of extracting material from country and um, just to understand some of the experiences that you've had that are appropriate protocols. When we were designing um, the exhibition, Annie Carolyn and I partnered together to do an exhibition called Nargij and Barna, which was at Art Centre and, I don't know. Yeah, you can say. Okay, it's going to be at Melbourne now at NGV. <laughs> NGV. Everybody come to NGV. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, we were trying to find suppliers that weren't just about extracting. We were trying to find companies that um, had some sort of protocol or value system around them. And most of the ones that do have it on their website, so it's not that hard to find if you go for a look. But you come across certain places like Ceres Fairwood, for example, who collect timber that's been felled on farms um, and uh, tags where it comes from, who, um, when it was fell down, if it was cut down or if it had to be removed because it was sick, um, who then milled it, where it was milled, how it got to them and then how it became part of the system of construction in some way. So they map the whole thing and they're not... They're not, um, like, actively going out there and, like, going, okay, I plant all these things, we're going to chop them all down. It's, a, it's like, a slow and a natural process of, you know, trees do die. 
they do need to be cut down at a certain point in time. A lot of the plane trees in Melbourne are starting to die and it makes me very happy and I'm so sorry I said that out loud. <laughs> but they are. Um, they get, like, trees get sick if they're not cared for properly um, or if something happens or there's a fire or whatever. I'm going on tangents. But um, there's also this embedded process and understanding of renewal which mostly centres around this idea of carbon in that if you build a tree, the carbon gets stuck in the tree. Um, but if you then chop it down and put it into a building, the carbon is still trapped in that timber. But if you burn it, then it releases the carbon. I'm not a carbon scientist, but I'm so sick of hearing about carbon that I've heard so much about carbon that I don't know it's real anymore. Um, but the, I think it's finding people with those similar value sets is what I'm trying to say is the answer to that question. Um, or, you know, how many... If you've got an Aboriginal business that is... that There are Aboriginal businesses that mill timber or cut down and mill timber and they do it in the context of the, the place that they're in. Um, understanding their story and the reason that they've chosen to do it because it's not my value set that matters. It's actually the value set of the land that it's coming from that matters. So understanding if they know the value set of the country that they're on and they're doing their work in alignment with that. I don't know if I answered the question. I went off on a tangent. No, so I think unlikely, you answered. <laughs> it's... Um, this makes me think of uh, my Pabri family on Mare. Mare is the most eastern island of the Torres Strait. So, Miriam language, if you're going up the Great Barrier Reef, up north, the very, very, very top of the Great Barrier Reef is Mare. And it's the birthplace of native title. It's the home of Koiki, Eddie Mabo. Uh, and I did a project there a few years ago working with Marup, which is an endemic species of black bamboo working with um, the community to kind of invigorate a furniture-making um, industry around the bamboo. And Mare is a really interesting, like, community. Um, the One of the most sacred animals, well, the two most sacred animals are Nam, the turtle, and Arti, which is the octopus. And one of the reasons for that is these are the two animals that can go in and out of the water and so into the underworld and also into into our world. Um, but the entire community is represented in the body of the octopus god, Arti. There are eight tribes that make up Mare. So I'm going to forget all of their names, but Magaram, Pebri, um, Dawar, uh, I'm going to forget them all, it doesn't matter. But there are eight different tribes that come together and the, each tribe is represented in one leg of the octopus god. And together, when they come together, they are represented in the whole. And when we were kind of working on this furniture project that was entirely initiated by Merged Kemley, which is their kind of um, tribal council, and they said that we want to we want to industrialize, we want to work on this um, work with this bamboo. We're the only island that has this endemic species, and you know, Arab have their ghost nets. Mare, we want to have bamboo. We want this to be our our way of presenting. Um, you know, something unique, uniquely Miriam in the art world. And the first thing they wanted to make was a cabinet. And it was a cabinet called the Arti Cabinet. And it was a cabinet that represented the octopus. And it was the suckers of the octopus cut from discs of bamboo, flattened onto the front. And um, all of the elders came together from all of the different tribes and agreed that we could use, that we would work with this material um, agreed on the amount of material that could be used. Um, is, you know, the project was initiated by an um, amazing, um, amazing uncle named Ava Noah, and he 
had kind of told the tribal council that we were going to harvest the bamboo and some people thought that that meant they were going to cut, take it all away. And so communicating that, no, no, it's not about that, it's about using. And so what was an appropriate amount of the bamboo to use from what part of the island? It couldn't be from near Koiki's resting place. So where could you take it from? How much could you take? And then the kind of beautiful symbolism of the first thing to be made using it to be this um, sort of abstract representation of the octopus god, which in itself is the most beautiful metaphor for the way, for kind of, I've been to so many like symposiums on co-design and on collaboration. And yet in this one moment, you get this sense of like what actual co-design and actual collaboration looks like. And it's also an unbelievably beautiful metaphor, you know? So I think that to me would be the kind of the, yeah, the ideal. <laughs> um, I, th thanks for sharing. That's, that's a really um, beautiful and captivating story. Um, I've had a similar experience in talking to people who know their country so well and they know what they can use and kind of take in a way that's, that's right. Um, so working up on Nugura country, just south of Fitzroy Crossing, um, currently working on a kind of art gallery, art centre there for a significant painting that was painted for a land rights case. Um, and the painting, it's essentially a painting of 10 different jilla, which are water sources in the desert. Um, and the site for the building, so Nugura country is kind of organised around 10 significant sites. Uh, and the site for the building is on um, Wamajari land. So to kind of negotiate that, there was a discussion around the materiality of the building and how um, the other kind of nine sites could be, could feel as if the building represented them um, and that they had visibility in the project. So there was, you know, talk of kind of of going out to sites and taking stones to use in the building um, and then to also use like, earth through a rammed earth strategy. Um, and having that understanding of exactly where to take it and who to speak to and like, brings people into the project um, in a way that's that's respectful and um, just so incredibly exciting. Like ever, the moment where people see themselves in a process um, and in a, anything that's designed is, it's really special. Um, and yeah, thinking about that kind of strategy of working with country in that way has got us to that point. So we know these, um processes and materials are of country and to be treated with respect. In architecture, um, you know, when a project's finished, there's probably going to be some kind of maintenance plan, which is kind of a little bit more of a boring question. <laughs> there's a maintenance plan or a maintenance strategy, you know, post handover, 
Um, have you guys experienced some form of cultural maintenance um, strategy to care for the materials of country? And if not, what do you think that could or would look like? How does that work? Like conservation? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a... I feel like I'm kind of taking a side route to some of these things because I don't have this lived experience in the design world. But definitely in terms of being custodians of material culture, um, we there was a, a, a tendency in the past to um, kind of treat Aboriginal material as if um, like the most important thing was that it was physically preserved. So in museums, things were treated with arsenic and bromine um, in order to um, try and like prevent pest infestations. But of course, that made them hazardous. And um, to handle an object, you have to hold gl wear gloves, and um, they're kept in you know low lighting and with perfect controlled relative humidity on acid free tissue and in compactus in drawers and this incredibly sterile environment um, where these objects would go and then they would fall asleep. They would lose their connection to people. And I think as museums, we kind of looked at every single risk to an object except the risk of, it, of disassociation the risk of it becoming, you know, I mean, whoever the genius collection manager was who put string tags on boomerangs, like they all fell off in the 19th century and now there are drawers of string tags and there are drawers of boomerangs <laughs> and no one can match them up. And it's kind of bizarre. But I think if you have a possum skin cloak in your collection and you've acquired that cloak and someone wears that cloak and it tears, that's not, you haven't damaged that object. If anything, you've given that object more life. That object is now em empowered with story and with meaning and with cultural significance. And so I think from a museum point of view as a kind of care caretakers of material culture and particularly kind of historical material, not so much in the space of contemporary art, it's about understanding that what works for some doesn't work for others. And, you know, there's, we need to adapt to that. And I've seen the museum do some really interesting stuff with this. I've seen them use recently at a funeral, they used um, boomerangs as part of a, a musical ceremony at the beginning. And they were collection objects. And these are things in the past come out on little pillows and you hold them with you know, little blue gloves. But seeing them actually used in ceremony, that wakes them up and it gives them more meaning. And so I think it's about that having flexibility to be able to change the way, you know, the people who we assume know best, these are the people who we know how to care for these objects best because if you use it in a ceremony, it might get chipped. Well, actually, if you talk to traditional owners, a lot of the time people will say, actually, that's, that's part of keeping it alive. If we don't use it in a ceremony, then it falls asleep. And I, I used to say they died, but they don't die. They just fall asleep. And it's now our job to, to wake them up. Um, it's not really answering your question, but off the back of that, I was having a conversation with someone the other day. We're doing a review for a design, and I was trying to put my finger on why 
it, it just didn't have any joy, even though they were engaging with artists and there's all sorts of things happening in the process. And at the end of that conversation, I came to the same conclusion as what you were talking about, that everything that was designed into it was static and that our culture is practised. And well, our cultures are practised. And so how you then balance this idea of um, a static design response because a building needs to stand up and be solid and last for a long time. Um, but how can architecture or landscape architecture or the built design of built environments actually invite you to repractice something that maybe no longer um, you're able to because of the way that the built environment was formed. I think it's a really interesting conversation about if we actually think about how do you make architecture interactive but not digitally, uh, like physically, and that physical act is actually the process of caring for country or the process of walking country or the process of reconnecting with the foots of your ancestors, like the steps of your ancestors. Um, and where they may have walked before, perhaps they can't walk there anymore. Like, how do you actually re, re you create that connection by action? Um, which I think is a fun design challenge. And it could be really interesting to see where we could go with that rather than it just being a static representation. Static representation important, but it's not connected. Um, I forgot what your question was because I went off on a tangent, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, um, I, I really like the idea of things not being dead but asleep. And I think if you look at a, look at a building, right, you, you're seeing a lot of... You're seeing bits of country that have been carved up that have been, you know, cut, dug, and then kind of collected in a certain way and just froze until, you know, decay becomes waste, what have you. But... Country's still there in different forms. Um, and I think, I, I'm not sure what the future looks like in, in that sense, but I mean, you know, Aboriginal art in, in buildings, in architecture projects, it, it's always, there's always kind of like an explanation that, that talks about it. There's this kind of pedagogical intent in artwork. But I mean, if we look around a building, you can see that countries everywhere and there should be that pedagogical intent to say this is where it's come from, this is what we've done. You know, we need to, to kind of bring that level of reading to, to our pr profession, to our built environment. Just kind of look a, bit, look a bit closer. It's really fun when you get to do that. We're doing that on a project at the moment and I can't wait for it to be actually live, but it's, cool. um, it changes the way that everybody thinks about the decisions that you're making because you're trying to honour where everything's come from but also tell the story of where everything has come from um, in, and then tell the story of all the artists or makers or whoever has contributed to it at the same time and then it becomes... A, like the, the project becomes a living storybook of countries and experiences rather than a static collection of materials. Yeah. It's, it means so much more. And that's fascinating. Like, surely that's so exciting. Mm. I love that active not static because I think even when we look at history and the before times and when you know people have this tendency to think that before the arrival of Cook in 1770 the Aboriginal people were just sitting around waiting to be discovered um, whereas actually we know you know n not only had the French and Dutch been here before Cook so that you know smashes that whole discovery myth but we had Aboriginal people traveling through 
you know, Torres Strait to Papua New Guinea, we had um, people going backwards and forwards and intermarrying throughout Indonesia. Um, there are pearl shell pendants that were traded to the Kimberley from Southeast Asia that have made their way all the way down to the southeast of Australia, kind of becoming more valuable the further into the continent they went. And I think once we start to kind of smash that stereotype and remember that Aboriginal people have always been active and intrepid explorers with agency who were crossing seas, you know, who were boarding canoes and crossing seas and, and, and building global relationships before the arrival of the British, then you start to understand that this knowledge that we're, we're listening to, this knowledge that we're kind of screaming for people to listen to is knowledge that is so, it's so powerful and it's so informed by, you know, a relationship um, that is just, you know, we're looking, we're talking about 250 years and don't get me wrong, the arrival of Cook fundamentally changed everything in this continent. I'm not taking that away as a, but it is a tiny, tiny blip in the history of this place. And so I think that's where, you know, it's about agency and about, daring to listen to people who, you know, for a very, very long time have been doing just fine. Um, what you're talking about and what you're discussing is really um, pertinent in a way that you know, I've had a lot of conversations with people who talk about how um, you can preserve, how do you preserve culture? And I guess, you know, your explanation of preserving culture in a museum context um, made me realise that it's not about preserving, but it's about, like, revitalising and just letting, letting something live and letting something create its own stories and um, letting something kind of, you know, just go off and be itself. Um, which I think is a really important lesson. So we are, you know, we are um, close to the end of the session. Um, so I just had a couple of questions just to finish up that um, maybe people can take away. Uh, the first question is, given everything that we've talked about this afternoon or this evening, um, are there some project references that <laughs> capture the types of things that we're discussing that you'd be willing to share or that um, you think would be good for people to go and have a look at or have a read on. And in the, ter in the space of architecture, I know that this is um, a lot of the things that we're talking about and exploring and discussing um, is relatively new in a, in a purely architectural sense. So even if there's something that's unbuilt or if there's something that um, is more of a competition entry. Or well, because she's not going to say it. I'm just going to say Sarah Lynn Reese is the resource um, and absolutely leading the charge in this space and doing extraordinary things. Um, and so I would be watching very closely for this extraordinary um, change that's coming. Um, other than that, look, it's not a resource as much as a, a mantra and it's just nothing about us without us, which, you know, I've heard a million times, but that to me is a very much a guiding principle. And, you know, I will call it a resource because it was chanted at Invasion Day rallies, you know, forever. And it's something that our elders have passed down, an oral, an oral history, a mantra. And so, yeah, that would, that's my resource. And then the other one is follow this one. 
Uh, watch me be awkward. Um, thank you. Um, oh, it, like, I hate this question and I hate it because, and I think I have said this a million times before, we don't know what's happened in every project. We don't know what protocols were gone through with the traditional owners. We more often than not never hear from the traditional owners in the context of how they feel about the project. We don't know um, if the resulting design that we see is a, a pro, uh, like in reaction to a proper like a cultural process or whether it was conceived and then approved. Both are valid options depending on how the traditional owners want to work. We just don't know. And it's so hard to stand up and be like, this is an awesome project because you don't know. Like, you don't know that... We don't talk about the process because the process is messy and it might not have been perfect. And everyone wants to sort of go, oh, aren't we so wonderful at co-design? It's like, yeah, we've done a lot of projects, right? We've worked with traditional custodians. They're only available to be in a design review capacity and they lean on you and your relationship with them to bring in design ideas and push them forth. And they'll tell you if you're getting it wrong, but, like... Sometimes that's what the design process is. Other times you're completely guided by cultural knowledge and you're responding to the values of a place and you're embedding them. So I, I just can't answer that question. I kind of refuse to answer that question because I can't know. Like there are pro projects that have been awarded for like Aboriginal design and you're like, yeah, but really? But why? I don't know. And that's where it gets dangerous because our systems can't account for the nuance of those things, which we're trying to fix, so it's okay. We're on that one, guys. Coming to you, 2024. Yeah. We're trying. Yeah. At least you didn't ask us for some bad examples. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because I'm pretty sure we would have had a longer list. Yeah. Um, I suppose just thinking, thinking about work that inspires me, right? Like, that's... Sometimes that's all. That's what I look for. Um, I think it's important that we stay, yeah, just like find that fun, join things. Speaking personally, um, the work of Liam Nagunda, who's a, an artist from Fitzroy Crossing, um, he makes incredible uh, knives and hunting tools out of materials that he finds on country. Um, so. Again, kind of accessing what's available to him and applying what has been given to him from previous generations through his cultural knowledge. Uh, and I think in, as, a, as a way forward in terms of principles, that's, I think that's a good, good way of, of, of thinking about things. Um, what, what, what can we do? in new ways, with new materials, um, guided by what's been given to us from past generations, and how can we think about future generations within that? Thank you. Um, I'll throw one out there as well, um, which is um, some of the work by um, a special designer, Danielle Homrek, um, Jinjama. Yeah. If, Anyone hasn't seen her stuff, I'd really recommend it. Um, and I think one of the great things that she does um, is all of her research and studies and explorations is completely free online. Um, so if you want to learn more, highly recommend it. It was Danielle Homrek, Jinjama. I second. <laughs> um, can we please thank very much Michael, Sarah and Miles 
for their time tonight. You guys, you guys did a great job. Killed Thank it. Thank you. Deadly. Thank thanks. you for facilitating. My pleasure. Um, thanks, everyone, for coming. You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. <laughs>